Kara told me you know where M's at. Uh-huh. And why are you looking for M? She asked for my help. Uh-huh. Well, listen, man, I got plenty on my plate without dealing with some jilted X. It's not about that. Well, whatever it's about, act smarter than you look and drop it. Where's she at? You better get while it's good. Feel it now, dig? Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzi, and this is episode 79. We're right. in the 70s. We made it. We made it, Mario. Yeah. Now it's for real. It's for yeah. real now. We're and no, no because we're anymore. so for real, and because we have a lot to talk about today, I think we're going to jump right into the beer, which you brought. Yep. Kind of. Kind of. We, uh, we are so for real that I, I, I got carried away being so for real and forgot the, <laughs> forgot the beer <laughs> we were supposed to drink at our house. We saw Eternity's Gate right before this, and uh, we were both very excited to see it that... Uh, we uh, ended up forgetting beers. Yes. Um, so there was a liquor store right next to Cine 1234 in North Haven. Or is that New Haven? That's still New, uh, still New Haven. New Haven. Yes. Um, you know, small fourplex. Um, cash only. Cash only. When you buy a movie, they actually give you one of those like, ticket stuff yep. things. And if you don't have cash, it actually says there is a convenient ATM right next door. At the liquor store where I bought this, <laughs> where I bought this beer. They don't even have the ATM at the at the theater. That's, no, that's great. Um, it is a uh, dogfish head because it's what they had. Um, closest we can get. Closest, which is pretty close. Delaware, you know, um, it's within walking distance. But it was really, it's a fascinating beer. It is a, it's called Wood Aged Bitches Brew. It is, I'm assuming, based or related to the, um. Miles Davis record, Bitches Brew, which is featured on the on the on the bottle and featured oh, on the that's a good fragrance. Um on the six pack. Um it is a stout brewed with Honey. Honey. There is some African spices listed on the box, box or... which I didn't bring up because we were in a rush. Um but I'll get back to you on that. Nine percent. It's a pretty heavy one. That's that fragrance is Yeah, it smells nice. Tremendous. All right, let's let's dink it. Mm. 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 Ooh. That is good. It's nice and sweet. Nope. Yeah, but it's not like overpoweringly no. sweet. It's um it's Ooh. sweet enough to un to underline the spice. So it has and it does have a bit of spiciness too, which Ooh. is nice. It finishes with like a spite a tangy. Yeah. Not a tanginess, uh like a like a nice little bite. Tastes like a it's got like a grape or like an elderberry flavor. Maybe yeah, yeah, an elderberry. And it finishes with a bit of like nutmeg almost. I may pour this into a glass later. I may want to see yeah. what this looks like. Pour it out. We'll take a picture of the bottle and uh the, and it's not, the poured beer. But it's not that boozy, which is interesting for a nine percent stout. Usually nine well, percent stouts are gonna be boozy. Don't start thinking that way because then we're gonna get in trouble for the rest of the Oh no for sure. Especially <laughs> this is gonna be a long especially podcast. Since when we were both looking for beers, uh Tom called me as we were racing over to the theater because we were both like to play by the seat of our pants, and yeah, he's like, so I, I forgot the beer, and I was like, I hadn't had beer here, so I was like, I guess I'll go grab some beer too. I went to a even more sketchy looking <laughs> liquor store than I expect Tom's was, and found a resin 
from Six Point, which is not the beer we're going to be drinking today, not the one we'll be talking about, but this is 9.1%. Yeah. So we have 12 beers of 9%. It's gonna, it's gonna be, we're not going to drink all 12. No, no. no hopefully. <laughs> it's going to get loopy either way, though. We will black out and maybe attack a woman in a four, in a on a walkway. Maybe. If we you do never that. know. Um, all right, so we're going to start by... We have a lot like to we talk always about, do. so we're going yep. to start with like Russian movies. I um, went to see uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Ladies and gentlemen. My name is Miles Morales. Brooklyn! I'm the one and only Spider-Man. At least that's what I thought. You ever hear of the Super Collider? You're going to love this. Dimension opening now. You're like me. That's impossible. With Spider-Verse. My- I keep calling it what? I want to call it. I keep wanting to call it multiverse, but that's probably why well, I did not They see say it. multiverse a lot, but... um. Yeah, it's into the Spider-Verse. I went to see it with my little guy. Um, it was a fully packed theater. The only thing that wasn't sold out was the um, the front row. Yeah, this made $35 million over the weekend. A yeah. nice, solid, I think, animated record, possibly? I think for December. Yeah, for, the, for December. Yeah. Um, Shmeek Mord is the voice of Miles Morales. He is a, uh, a teenager who gets uh, unknowingly bitten by a radioactive spider. And it, As one is wont to do in the sh- Spider-Man sh- universe. Um, in the process of that, he witnesses the death of Peter Parker, who is the Spider-Man in his universe, who is... Played by Chris Pine, right? Chris Pine, yep. Um, who I didn't really recognize when I was watching it. Um, he wasn't pretending to be uh, William the Bruce. No. no. <laughs> or um, Robert the Bruce, sorry. In the process, he's this Spider-Man in this universe is trying to stop Kingpin from using a, uh, uh, a kind of... Accelerator. You know, Whatever to open up a portal into the multiverse, so Kingpin can retrieve his wife and son, which I do who like, were killed um, because Spider-Man distracted him. And he was in a fight with Spider-Man. I do like, and I read the synopsis for this just because I'm not going to probably see it in theaters. Um, I wasn't going to, and I saw the reviews for it. But I do like the fact that they're keeping Kingpin as a quasi looks like a quasi sympathetic means. I agree. I, I agree with you, and um, it made the it made an already kind of. Pretty deep film, even deeper. Um, and Liam Schreiber yes, plays Kingpin. Kingpin, right? yeah. Um, when he, when Kingpin opens this portal to the multiverse, he unwittingly um, invites or uh, pulls five additional Spider-Man figures into this universe. Um, the catch is that every universe has their own Spider-Man. He has, so he pulls in Spider-Woman, who is a Gwen Stacy. He pulls in uh, Spider-Pig. He pulls in Noir Spider-Man, voiced awesomely by Nick Cage. I heard Nick, he was trying to oh, do a Bogart, is man. what he said. <laughs> Bogart who can't figure out a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, he pulls in a teenage girl who, uh, you know, is styled after an anime character who's, you know controls a robot possessed by the ghost of her dead father along with the radioactive spider. Um, Wait, the ghost of the radioactive spider? No, the ghost of her father. Oh. And the spider is in it. Oh, okay. So, you know, he keeps it radioactive. The spider is not, not he, a ghost. He also pulls in um, Peter B. Parker, who is a aged 20 years to the Chris Pines Peter Parker, who's 26 and, and this, blonde and like super and perfect. Jake Johnson? Jake Johnson. The new girl? One of the genius pieces of casting, I've always said, and my wife can back me up on this, the single greatest piece of casting ever in the history of entertainment was on 30 Rock when 
<clears throat> Jack Donaghy is trying to do a TV movie, um, and he's supposed to be a character in it. He casts the show casts Billy Baldwin to play the guy who's playing Jack Donaghy, um, which is just so mind-blowingly genius. It was fantastic. Um, casting Jake Johnson as Fat Spider-Man, you know, slightly <laughs> overweight Spider-Man, slightly not caring Spider-Man, Spider-Man who does his first mission with one shoe on and in sweatpants, <laughs> um, whose main concern at the end of it is to make sure he grabs a bagel from the cafeteria as they're escaping, and actually does, you know, grab a bagel, and leading some scientist who all of a sudden notices that, you know, these two Spider-Men are escaping, say, he got a bagel, um, is pure fucking genius. He is amazing. And if we did, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, an all-star thing of, you know, just super awesome things that happened in movies in 2018, Jake Johnson getting to be this Spider-Man would be, like, at the top of the list. Because it's so much fun. He's having so much fun with this character. And I think that's one of the things that... And that's the thing I've heard about this movie. It just seems like everyone's having a lot of right, fun and, that's, and doing it really and authentically. I think it's one of the, like, the one thing I really want to say about this movie is that I've read a lot of reviews of it and like a lot of people are focused on the idea that it's multicultural and it's multiracial and there's you know all this Kendrick Lamar music, which is fucking great. Um, you know, um, there's all these different genders kind of walking through it. It's, there are, there's a lot of things happening in it that are relevant to 2018. It's empowering to a lot of different people. Right. But it's also, would, that wouldn't matter at all if it wasn't so much fun. Everything in here is so much fun. Like, Kendrick Lamar's music is great from a multicultural standpoint. It's great from a representational standpoint. But it also is just fucking awesome to see Miles Morales figuring out how to be Spider-Man in his sp- newly spray-painted Spider-Man suit, you know, flying through the air, jumping off of buildings, running up the sides of walls while this song is playing. Yeah. It's something that, it's an energy that none of these movies, and I don't, I don't want to say it's like, it's probably the best superhero movie I've ever seen, except for maybe Age of Ultron is second, because... Age it, of Ultron, really? Even Dark Knight? Well, but I don't count Dark Knight as a superhero okay. movie. I just, one of these Marvel-y, type, like, you know, superhero movies. And Age of Ultron is only because it's, like an act of sabotage. They just tried to ruin the Marvel Universe by ha- <laughs> casting James Spader as the voice of a robot. Um, and I, you know, I, I really love that. Um, but you just, I mean, the voice acting in this is, you know, again, to reference them, you know, the, the representational thing, you have so many great actors, like Brian Tyree Henry is doing another great thing. Um, as the voice of, of Miles' dad, and, you know, Mahershala Ali does the voice of Miles' uncle, and, you know, you have Leah Schreiber and Jake Johnson and um, Haley Sittenfield and Zoe Kravitz and um, Catherine Hahn, who we're going to talk about, you know, later in the month in terms of awards consideration. Next is month, doing yeah. Dr. Octopus, you know, a, you know, a gender twist on Dr. Octopus. Um, and the colors are so good, and the art is so good, and a lot of people have been... I've well, been they, they're trademarking, I heard, like, the art style, just because of how yeah. amazing it well, was. Well, so a lot of the podcasts I've listened to are focused... They, all they want to say is, like, oh, they use heavy lines. You know, it's not, like, seamless Pixar stuff. You know what I mean? It looks like a drawing. But mm. they don't really talk about what that... because well, they draw... Right. They hand-drew it and then did CGI over but it. But they or... don't talk about what that means. And when if you see it, I want you to focus on I do this. think I'm going to see it, just given your review yeah. and the reviews I've seen. 
because of those things, if you get the physics right, and the inside of the of those dark lines are really clear and vivid, there's a real like weight to what's happening. So when Miles is, or Spider Man or anybody is swinging through, you know, the streets of fucking New York, you know. You can kind of almost you can kind of almost feel that you know what I mean it's almost like you're on a roller coaster and I, well, I didn't even see it on 3D but you can you can kind of feel yourself being propelled by the weight of it and it just adds to the excitement of of the movie um, and it's fantastic it's utterly fantastic it's gonna be in my top. Did you 10. say it for the after credit scene? Yeah, yeah, it's great. But the <laughs> the best. Don't want to talk too much about that. The thing is that like my five year old. You know, hasn't seen very much Spider-Man stuff, so he didn't understand why it was so. <laughs> why it was so great? And that's Oscar Isaac, right? That did uh, the yeah, twenty ninety-nine yeah, yeah. voice. He pointed at me. He pointed at me. Why he pointed? He pointed at me. Um, oh, it's just so funny. It's just so funny. Um, but also, really profound. And and that's what's important. Just, it's like it's like you are going to get. And once again, speaking as two white men, you are going <laughs> to get. Like this is this is a year where you're noticing a lot of profound commentary or profound films featuring multicultural or African American stars when those films are incredibly solid and you know you're not it doesn't matter if the movie behind it isn't good well, when you know Black Klansmen and yeah, yeah, Sorry yeah. to Bother You are doing what they're doing that's when we recognize that's when you can recognize that work like even more so than you would. Right, and I know a lot of people. I mean, I've read the the Armand White review. Kind of makes it seem like it's from a, the, from the National Review. Yeah, from the National Review makes it seem like it's a you know it's a it's a money making sham that they're just you know Black Panther and this they're just kind of throwing these things in there as another way to exploit um, money out of people. But that's not true because the movies are good. Yeah, it's irrelevant. It's if... good that they're making money because it makes people less afraid to make these kinds of movies. Yeah, it's irrelevant if the movie itself is quality. Right. Um, I don't, you know, we can talk about it again if you see it. You know what I mean? I'd be, yeah, I will. If we have it's a slow week, we'd be, be glad to talk about it. This be a good uh, movie to bring up, I think, with the way you're feeling about it during our end of year awards discussions when we talk about the animated feature categories. And I've got a new, I've got a, a spot open now on my best of list for this movie because a movie that was going to be on it. Isn't on my list anymore, Mario. Was it the movie we just both saw this week? No. Well, yeah, it's a movie we both saw this week. It's the movie we're going to talk about next, and that would be Alfonso Cuarón's Netflix masterpiece. I'm making major air quotation marks. Um, Roma. Oh, yeah. Go, Mario. Go. Oh, we're going. We're going right into Roma. Huh? I'm unleashing. I wrote, I wrote I'm unleashing Mario. Nothing about the, the uh, written, directed, cinematography. By Alfonso Cuaron. Yep. Edited by Alfonso Cuaron and um, Adam Go. It tells the it tells the story of a of a maid in a moderate middle upper middle class semi affluent um, household in 1970 1971 and it's Mexico supposed to be City. his own right. And it's supposed it's, to be it's, it's a, based it's on a, his Lilo, as they say in the end. Um, Lebo? Lebo. Yeah. Lebo, the Lebo, yeah, the Lebo. It's yeah. based off of his, his childhood. His, based off his childhood. It's, yeah, exactly. It's a tribute to the woman who he, that raised him and his, and his siblings. Um, and it tells the tale of her life, how she you know, becomes pregnant, deals with the, the trauma of pregnancy, and her, the father of um, the child just disappearing to join what turns out to be a uh, radical militia group. Los Halcones. Um, 
and deals with the day-to-day life stresses that a lot of women faced in the early 1970s in Mexico City with husbands who would leave them, with men who would abandon their responsibilities, um, eventually exploding into the streets. The um, I believe it was based on the Corpus Christi riots. Massacre, yeah. The Corpus Christi massacre. Turn on my mic. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, based... At its core, it is just the tale of of one woman and her relationship with his family, and it is. Don't do it! Don't do it, Mario! Fucking awful! It is <laughs> not the worst movie. I would not say that. It is so masterfully made in the sense that Alfonso Cuarón is is. A master filmmaker, like he can sleepwalk master, his he can I mean, sleepwalk his way through a really well made film. And we're not saying he did sleepwalk his way through this movie. No, he clearly no. didn't. No, this is a, a labor of love, and that's why I would not. I'll be disappointed, and I'm disappointed by the success that it has received from the critic circles and the success it will probably receive from the Academy. Well, um, if it means keeping if it means keeping it awards out of the hands of stars born, yeah, then fine. Because, like, this, this, this is definitely a movie that w- that had a lot of tremendous effort put forward by somebody who deeply cared about the subject matter. The unfortunate thing is, is that I literally fucking hate <laughs> everything about the way it was done. Um, oh, man. Not that I don't care about the subject matter. I just so loathe how the subject matter was presented. Mm. Um, the one thing I would very much argue against is the cinematography of this film and the love of the cinematography. Um, I mean, this is something that you've talked about in podcasts previously. Like, you, yeah. The point you're going to make now is not a point... It's consistent with everything you feel about cinematography. Yeah. The, the film critic David Bordwell in the Poetics of Cinema said that narrative is a whole and agents take up a place in a larger rhythm of event-driven activity. And this is a film whose cinematography is so devoid of activity. It is constant, excluding several sequences, constant static cameras presented in an incredibly well-framed image Mm. that do nothing to advance or drive the narrative. It is simply looking at a portrait as the action goes on. Man, I am sounding real mad. As the action goes on around it, and it it does nothing. It does absolutely nothing to evoke emotion, to coax the opinion of the viewer, to add any sort of element of emotions, excluding a few sequences. Um, most notably, the the entire sequence where the massacre starts occurring, that kind of like long pan shot, that's brilliant. Like, And that shows that there is moments of right. utter brilliance. But there's so many scenes during the first 60 to 70 minutes of this film that were really championed as though they were building a narrative. And, and you see a lot of the critical reviews that that loud this film say that it does start slow and it slowly builds to these explosive moments, but it doesn't because those explosive moments are still very much presented in a methodic way. And this is a methodic, meticulously crafted film, but is methodically and meticulously crafted in such a way that it is meant to be a day in the life, a slice of what is happening, a very naturalistic sort of um, mix between what, French New Wave and, and neo real and Italian neo realism, I guess it's kind of like an evolution of that. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't do anything to evoke emotion. When movies like that, you know, when when you look at 
the Ita- um, the Italian neorealism. You know, the films like Bicycle Thieves or Umberto D. Uh, you know, th- those films do things with their camera, do things with the blocking of their actors to actually create some sort of pathos. And this film is devoid of pathos. Well, even like something modern like Happy as Lazaro. You know what I mean? Is, oh, exactly. Is echoing that Italian realism, but like, the, <laughs> and that's and that's it's like doing something. But it's funny that you bring up the French movie because I felt that way too, um, especially because I watched the Brian De Palma documentary like right after this, and he was talking about you know, you know, the, about being into the French New Wave when he got into filmmaking in the '60s, and they showed these clips of like the 400 Blows, and they showed the clips of um, of Breathless. And you know, what there's a lot of in those movies. There's a lot of vertical camera moving along with the actors and along with the action. But you get a lot of horizontal movement of the camera, which Quaron does. I mean, Children yeah. of Men is some of the best shots in Children of Men, which I think we're going to talk about later, are just his Quaron's, you know, panning, his horizontal panning shots. But that camera's, mo- camera's on something and it's fucking moving. Well, yeah. You know what the, I mean? It's not just kind of The most famous sequence is that long one take that's on... It's not a dolly sequence. It's a ste- what, I'd say a steady cam sequence. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we'll research that and talk about that more knowledgeably in the months and to come. But you know, there is a, a life to the camera, and and when the camera is static um, and, and frames a shot beautifully in Children of Men, it's to invoke a sense of maybe pending dread. Um, or, or, or calm before yeah. violently taken away from you. Think of the sequence in Children of Men, you know, inside the car, where it gets nice, yeah. nice horizontal panning, which eventually leads to a moment of extreme violence. Um, or, you know, that take where Clive Owen's character is walking before the, the terrorist attack occurs. You know, these are moments that drive a rhythm. Um, you know, going back to Bordwell, he says that conceptions of narration, plot structure in the story would try to take into account the overall form of the film. The assumption here is that it, the regularity refined across the whole artifact allow us to make inferences about the purposes of the makers. Cuts or camera, movement, cuts or camera movements may carry us into a scene, and this movie doesn't do that. I am always knowing I'm watching a movie. Yeah. I'm always looking at something with such artifice. Mm-hmm. And this movie is so artificial. Um, one scene I would actually say is, is, is poorly done. And I don't, I don't understand what he was trying to do. And may, maybe that's, that's a fault of me, and then I'd like to hear your thoughts of it, I is um, the New Year's uh, fire sequence, you know, where it does yeah. that long single take I, yeah. of, of that drunk man singing. Um, and it, but it, what is it evoking in me? Because nothing in this movie, you know, I'd like to consider myself a somewhat intelligent viewer, but I am never invoked with emotion in this film. There is nothing guiding me in, in the narrative and in the very kind of, I don't want to say flat performances, but in the very naturalistic performances, there is nothing carrying emotion for me. Yeah. Um, That's my problem. I felt nothing watching this. I... Except boredom. Agree with you. I don't hate it. Don't do it. (laughs) Um, I don't hate it, but it was from the very opening of the movie, it was was missing something. Oh, very significant. When I saw that first opening shot, I was like, oh, no. There's something that gave me a sense of like, Oh, I was no. here. I mean, so my mind. As soon as, as soon as I went into it, as soon as the movie opened, my mind 
exploded with ideas of 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 what was happening and in, in, in what was it was representing um you know with the with the the, the pattern uh, on the driveway and then the and then the water washing over it and then you know the plane going through it you know everyone talks about the the you know the opening scene but my interpretation of that was we're looking at a pattern on the floor okay it's very clearly it's steady it hasn't moved and then the water starts coming as soon as that water washed over it i could almost hear those like stereotypical memory harps start playing in my mind you know what i mean mm -hmm. knowing where this movie was coming from which everybody did no one went into this virtually no one is going into this movie blind not knowing that like oh alfonso it's based on alfonso Cuarón's life you know it's it's very autobiographical blah 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 so those memories chimes, those memory harps just kind of, you know, I'll play some. I'll put some in here. Um, that memory is triggered by that pattern. You know what I mean? It was almost as if someone was walking up to that, like, into that driveway in modern day, 2018, looking down, seeing that pattern, and all this stuff is coming, is washing back on them. You know what I mean? Which justifies, I think, some of those camera movements that you're talking about that you don't really like and I don't really like either. Um, you know, the static camera that's just looking around, it's not doing anything. It justifies those, Mario, if there is a character who is doing the looking, who is doing the remembering, who, who would be reflected in the cinematography. You know what I mean? So their emotions regarding these, these events that they're, that they're remembering, that they're witnessing in their mind, would be reflected... V via the cinematography, or even if it, you know, if it is just a omniscient viewer, um, if it was then doing something, if those moments were used to invoke. But something. I'm gonna go. I'll go right to the ending. But nothing about this film does that. Nothing about no, this no, no, film no. folks Okay, so that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm gonna say. Omniscient so, sort of narration. I may just read right from my paragraph that I've, I've written here. So <coughs> by the end of the movie, um, Cleo has lost her baby. Um, she her water broke during that attack during the Corpus Christi massacre, um, when she's confronted with, uh, you know, the baby's father who's okay. holding a gun in their face. Um, it takes them hours to get to the hospital. By then, the baby's died. She delivers a stillborn baby. She cries. Um, eventually, the family that she's with, um, they invite her to go to the ocean on a vacation with her. She um, saves the life of two of the children that she takes care of who drifted out too far into the ocean. They're all huddling together. Um, you know, it's it's the homepage of the Netflix screen. I'm sure you've seen it, this shot. It is, I believe this is the Variety third best shot of the year. I'm going to explain why I don't think it is. <laughs> well. They are huddling together. You know, there's... On the surface, it looks gorgeous. She's, you know, walking up and down the beach, and she's got this beautiful sun oh. behind her. She's, she's kind of, she's shadowed. Um, Absolutely, any single shot in this movie, you you take you you take a right. snapshot of that, put it on a wall, and that's that's art. The crux of this scene, though, is when after she saves the kid, they're all huddling together, and they're like, "Oh, um, Cleo saved us," and Cleo says that she didn't want to have the baby. She's crying, she's weeping, she's like, I didn't want to have the baby, I didn't want to have the baby. Um, this is supposed to be a very poignant scene, right? I mean, because the way, I mean, especially the way that it's shot, you know what I mean? And then, and then she's, 
she's confronting these outside things that have happened to her kind of in in the warm bosom of this of this family you know what i mean it's kind of the outside she's always felt like an outsider right it's like the out this outside and especially with the way that people have kind of framed this movie and i guess that coron wants us to frame it as kind of like you said a slice of life you know these are the things that are happening inside this family um there's chaos inside the family there's chaos outside the family the chaos outside the family tries to stay out for as long or they try to keep the chaos outside as long out as long as they can um, eventually, it just all kind of comes together. You know what I mean? Um, if so, this is you know, it's kind of like a pivot point in her life. Um, but like the camera, the it doesn't do any like the the cinematography doesn't do anything else. You know what I mean? It's just and when they get home, it's it's the same. It's the same shot the first 30 that minutes. you had. It was the same shot that you had at the beginning when that scene started. You know what I mean? Um, but then when she gets home, you know, she's answering the phone again. The camera's still static and, and drifting around. Um, she answers the phone. She's picking up clothes. She brings a bunch of clothes up to <clears throat> up to the roof, I suppose, to wash them. Like we've seen her wash stuff on the roof the before. The plane comes back to nicely bookmark it. There is literally no emotion attached to the sequence of events at all. And what, you, what I wanted the whole time was whoever this viewer was that's remembering these things. And it's not me, and it's not you, and it's not anyone else who's going to watch it. How are we... If there's no way that his intention could have been just, just watch it flat and make your own opinion about what's happening... The cinematography conveys no emotion beyond her own emotion. But doesn't even convey her own emotion. No, that's the thing. So it's the, the, the cinematography, which this movie hinges on, um, isn't, doing, isn't doing any work. It's not doing any emotional work. And the thing that I wanted the whole time, and I, I know I'm not supposed to review movies that don't exist. I would have been okay if the movie... That's your rule. I, I right. review movies that don't exist all the time. I would have been. It would have been really audacious of Coron to during the fire scene. You know what I mean when that guy is singing, to just keep panning around and to show Alfonso Coron as a modern guy just standing there witnessing these things. How powerful would that have been? Yeah. You know what I mean because then. We would have we'd be forced to interpret how the flatness of what we're seeing, the emotional flatness of what we're seeing on the screen, is reflective of his own personal feelings of it. But you would also think that the cinematography would be reflective of that would still be reflective of that emotion so in that end scene when she's running up and down you know when she's walking up the beach um with one saying stay out of the water and then she's running back down the beach to get that's just a beautifully shot beach scene you know what i mean it's doesn't it's not doing anything. it doesn't express danger it doesn't express sadness it doesn't express longing it doesn't express regret it doesn't express anything it expresses technical achievement right it expresses it. a really well composed black and white shot of a woman running up and down the beach and this is my problem too is like a lot of these shots would work if there had been more of an effort in the storytelling because of the fact that the viewer you know the the insight we're getting to it is so flat and is not 
you know, Quaron himself is not <coughs> that character. narrator. You know, the only avenue that we have into this film is, is Cleo. Name is Sophie. This is Sophie, but mostly Cleo. And Cleo is so presented with such hands-offness. Well, that's... And there's like no expression of her depth or, or, or consciousness. Um, right. The I closest mean... you get is that long, another one of those long static takes in the movie theater when he's, you know, the, the father has run off yeah. of her child and never comes back. Um, and I think this kind of leads into... A lot of the problems you said you had with it when we were talking about it after watching it, um, in the fact that there is no avenues to to feel any emotions, um, and I think the one major negative review for this that you said you did not read was uh, the Richard Brody. Well, because I just uh, New I, Yorker. I saw the headline and I was like, that seems like it's too close to what I'm feeling uh, about it, and I didn't want to like. I didn't want to lean on him at all. I wanted to be able to form, like, yeah. express my own thoughts about it. And I, and I just read that I read this, you know, earlier today because some of my opinions of the, my opinions of the film differ from from his. In the sense that he says that you know, smothering her her consciousness and depth, the only source that we have sure. into the heart of this film, uh, sets the tone for the movie's aesthetic and hollows it out, reducing Quaron's worthwhile intentions and evident passions to vain gestures. Yeah, and that one hundred percent, I think. Well, that's I love. I mean, I fucking love Richard Brody. He's like when I was watching the Brian. <laughs> or, I was watching, you know, the Brian De Palma documentary, which leads to like Quentin Tarantino, Brady St. Ellis, and Owen Gleiberman talking about how much they love, you know, Pauline Kael, blah blah blah. Richard Brody is my like fucking Pauline Kael. Like I just, it's almost like I haven't seen a movie until I've like read his review of the movie. Um, but that's I felt that too, and she's clearly our, she's clearly. The audiences. Quaron wants her to be the audience's eyes and ears. You know what I mean? She yeah. is the. She is our point of view. But for most of the movie, she's a cipher. She doesn't do anything. And I'm not even sure. And I, this is not to. Um, she is played by Yalitzia Aparicio. She does a good job. But she doesn't do anything. She doesn't do anything. But she does. But that's why I'm not sure why. Told to do. Everyone's talking to her about her, like you know being sad that she didn't get nominated for various awards. It's like, I'm not even sure what she's doing. She just has to be there and to look. Yeah, well... That's all Quaron is asking her to do is to look like, around. Like, the port... There's certain parts where you're supposed to get emotional affect, and Quaron's trying to do something, and it just doesn't work. Um, that nursery sequence, when, when she finds out she's three or four months pregnant, yeah, yeah. And, and the earthquake happens after when she's looking out, and, and the rocks and rubble falls on the, the incubator... You're you're supposed to kind of get a, a window into how she feels in that, mm-hmm. but the viewer doesn't know. I mean, are you trying to say like, is it kind of like the weight of the world, kind of like the, the, on this child sort of thing? So and like, yeah. is that what it's trying to do? But because of the fact that there's so many variables to play that could that could possibly be the answer, it makes it a weak narrative. Perfect. This is a perfect lead-in to kind of one of the things that I wanted to talk about in, re- in regards to that exact thing, is that you could interpret a lot of what's happening in a lot of different ways. So one of the things that I thought, coming away with it and really thinking about it, and I would get, I, you know, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, I'm, so t- I'm very tired, and one of the reasons is because I was just writing big blocks of notes about, you know, some of the things that I was feeling. And the thing that kept coming back to me is it almost seemed like Coron was trying to make a piece of magical realism mm, me too, without me too. the magic 
Yeah, no, I got you know that I mean? a lot of that too. So, if, I mean, I made a list of... Which is really common in the 1960s, 1970s uh, sure. Mexican cinema. And I made a list... I wish I had examples I made a list here, and it says... Well, that's... I wasn't even going... Because I'm an English guy, so I was going right to, like, 100 Years of Solitude. You know what I mean? Especially with the Corpus Christi Massacre, it was a lot like the banana massacre that, you know, he portrayed there. Um, where he would use real-life events... To you'd put place real life events in the in a fictional context to kind of illustrate some of the fictional ideas that he was dealing with. But I made a list of little absurdities, Mario. Like, so oh, the, name my first solo album. Yeah, it's a good one. Thank you. So, um, Fairman doing like super nude martial arts. You know what I mean? Like the marching band that's walking down the street. Well, somebody said that I was supposed to reduce like men to the like, parts. I was like, you're getting that. What's the thing? And like, uh, maybe that's the intention. Maybe the intention is Koran's presenting such a static, flat. Now, I'll let you go back to it. But maybe he's presenting such a static, flat world that, you know, he's he's letting the viewer like make up what it is. But I don't. I don't see that at all. Go back to your. So yeah. So it's you know, nude martial arts, the marching band walking down the street. Um, you know, the earthquake, that kid in the hazmat suit walking through the woods, um, the guy in the hair outfit, the fact that they're listening to Jesus Christ Superstar. I mean, I know it's supposed to be 1970, 71, um, but that's just, like, funny that they're listening to Jesus. I mean, I know everyone was listening to Jesus Christ Superstar, but it's just funny. Um, the guy singing the song while the woods are burning. Um, you know, th- that kid with the bucket on his head when she goes to see um, Fairman at that, you know, martial arts training thing where we meet the weirdo Professor Zovic who's standing on one leg and dressed like a wrestler. You know what I mean? A um, luchador, my friend. You a have, luchador. Right. You have that um, Ramon's, pa- Ramon's outdoor band. Ramon isn't wearing any pants and he's doing his lead singing. You know what I mean? And the guitar player is just playing the whole time and like staring and you know what's and a problem? Cleo down. And you know what's a problem too with this? And, and, and cutting off again, is, is there is so many moments of weird absurdity that maybe are supposed to be slice of life of ni- early 1970s Mexico that it, it, everything becomes lost. It becomes muddled and, and lost. They, I don't... I, 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 but I mean, you there's mentioned more. That, you mentioned that and I completely forgot about that scene until you mentioned that. I saw this movie fucking three times because I tried <laughs> to give it to myself. I liked it. Like, I mean, the last thing I want to point out is like, so when they're on vacation, there's a wedding going on, and they're eating ice cream under a huge crab. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, all of these things. So I, it's all a slice of life, I guess. But when you've framed it as such, I'm supposed to be drawing some meaning out of it. And there's no meaning. So I'm just grasping at straws trying to figure out what the fuck you're trying to do and here's here's the thing we could have make the point that it's not a film for us we could say that we could say it's not a film for us in the sense of it's it's no no we say maybe this isn't a film for us and maybe we don't understand the point because it's speaking to a different audience if that was you know and we accept that fact if we hadn't just watched happy as lazaro two weeks ago Openly admitted, we didn't necessarily know what she was what was be she was trying to say. Um, can't remember the director's name right now off the top of my head. Um, but that we fully got it, even though we didn't understand it. We fully got it, and it offered us, <coughs> and it offered the viewer something. It offered the viewer a place to be. And yeah. I think one of the problems with the way that this movie was shot is that um, even though it's, I think it's trying to show an example of like you know, very detailed. It's almost begging you to be in this place with them. But because of the way it's shot, because it's so static and because it's so emotionless, you can't get in. Like, where where am I supposed to get in here? I, I mean, I just, I want to get in. I desperately want to get in this movie. 
Um, but I can't. I mean, I don't know where to, I don't know where to go. And I mean, it's you know, I'm just I'm grasping at metaphors like you know the 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 flying metaphor with the you know the plane book. The movie's book ended by planes. There's the movie they go see that's taking place in planes. They go see another movie that's taking place in space. The car is named a Galaxy. I mean, it's clearly showing the like, tight, the the constant revel, or you know, going back to forth tight spaces. Obviously, showing right. the galaxy's too big, but well, it's, it's clearly something else showing going on that there. there's a. I mean, I think the metaphor ultimately is that there's a world outside of this world, and we get to see that world outside of the world when you know the massacre happens. Um, but it doesn't let you when it tries to ultimately bring it all together on the beach scene. It. It fails, and if it if it's gonna fail, if it's if the movie is saying that, even after all of this, um, class rules, and she goes back to being, Cleo the the servant, and they go back to being the family. They may be a little closer, but blah blah blah. Um, then, the movie and the way that that movie is shot should reflect those emotions, right? There should be a sadness present at the end of that movie, and there isn't. It's just more blankness. It's just more static. I mean, and I'm perfectly happy. I loved the fact that there was no score. I loved it. I fucking loved it. But you got to give me something. I mean, because why? What else? What am I watching this for? I could just go look at a painting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just show. I mean, it would be a really fantastic art project. Like. Get a huge, like the armory on fucking Lexington Avenue in New York City and put a bunch of shots, put the whole frame by frame movie up for you to just look at and see. I mean, that would be because that's kind of what we're doing. Because it's gorgeous. It's, it's, it is gorgeous, but. Um, it's gorgeous and, in service of nothing. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's still lives of nothing. Um, and it's unfortunate that, you know. Looking at art and looking at cinematography that we weren't fulfilled at all this week by any sort of, what is this we saw at Attorney's Gate? A grain of madness is the best of art. Do you believe that God gave you the gift of painting to keep you in misery? I never thought about it that way. Maybe God made me a painter for people who aren't born yet. Tell me, brother, am I a good painter? Not a good painter, Vincent. You're a great painter. I wanted so much to share what I see. Now I just think about my relationship to eternity. The movie that we, uh, me and Tom forgot our beers in, in excitement to go see. Uh, Julian Schnebel? 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 His first film in 11 years after Diving Bell and the Butterfly, a movie we'll be talking about extensively for some reason in the weeks to come. That's going to be that's going to be a one. It's going to be a single. Yeah, I think we were talking we were talking about doing this like when movies we're both really excited about talking about. It's not on my list. It's on Mario's list. Um, We may just do one movie. I was just looking at I was just looking at your number 46, and I realized that that's going to have to be a single episode too because it's not on my list. There's a long pause as he, as he looks like at it. fumble through my, my documents here. I actually think I oh, might yeah, forgot yeah. that. But that, that will be a single episode, too. There's, there's movies that, that you know... I may, sing, I may sing a lot during that, that episode. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, um, yeah, at Eternity's Gate, 
um, Julian Schnabel, it's, uh, you know, uh, Vincent Van Gogh, you biopic, know. you know, you know, biopic. At, at Eternity's Gate. Very small biopic of uh, the last few months of his life. Um, Willem Dafoe plays Vincent Van Gogh. Um, Rupert Friend plays his brother, Teo, uh, Teo Van Gogh. Um, Oscar Isaac plays Paul Gauguin. Um, cinematography, we should say right now before we get Benoit into Benoit Delhomme, who uh, did the proposition, and yep. uh, Lawless. I think his two biggest ones. Lawless, nice looking, not not the best movie, and it was a yeah. kind of disappointing follow up. And so going into this, I wasn't expecting a lot, and I left it not expecting a lot from life after watching yeah. this fucking gut and simultaneous throat punch of a movie. Yeah, God. Yeah, we we may have to <laughs> we may have to pause for some head shaking and deep sighs in the middle of this. Oh, so yeah, yeah, we haven't lost. I mean, I almost when we I almost cried a couple of times during the movie. Um, and when we left the theater, I was actually kind of bummed I mean, to be leaving the presence of this. Do, do you want do you want to say this right now? Second best performance of the year for me right now in terms of uh, the men. Um, that's up there. I, I gotta think. It's of, on. It's on. It's on my list. I mean. We'll talk about it more later, but I mean it's it's one hundred percent on my list. Foe's just fantastic. Maybe but it's probably. I mean, we, I think we probably have the same number one. Maybe we probably have yeah. the same number two. Um, Willem Dafoe is absolutely wonderful as as Vincent Van Gogh. I mean, I'm gonna. It literally just chronicles, like you said, the last couple months of his life. Um, but this is a movie that does the opposite of what we're saying Roma does not do. The movie is... The emotional complexity of this movie is completely carried by the cinematography. The component... No, I actually say the component parts. The component parts of its technical brilliance. Um, oh, I the mean, score the yeah. score is fine. The I lo- sound design and sound mixing on this film... I'm going to be honest with you. The score might be, my, it might be my favorite score of the year. No, I love the score. I mean, uh, I... I'm I was go, trying to under, I was trying to sell it, but this might also be. I'm my gonna go score. home and and purchase this this score. I don't care how tired I am when and I talk, get home. I'm buying this. Talk about a music. score that's so. And I, I was underselling it because I, I did. You know, you're the music oh, guy, but God. talk about a score that so brilliantly underlines mental condition in so many moments. Mental condition, and but not just like a not just stereotypical mental conditions not oh, illness really? even, even even like happiness no, not and, me- yeah not mental illness mental condition mind. like yeah. how his thinking i mean the way that those piano chords oh, they're so open this is the such way a good that movie. those bass notes overlap each other is a perfect mirror to the way that schnabel uses um the dialogue in this movie as another example of of vincent van gogh's diminishing you know, mental condition where he he's these are these are these things are overlapping, but the score is so beautiful. It's obviously evidencing how Van Gogh is perceiving the world around him. You know what I mean? And it's different than how he's perceiving his relationship to people. You know what I mean? So as these notes compound on each other, everything just gets more beautiful to the point where that at times some strings come in and it's too beautiful for him to look at and he has to lay down and just stare awestruck into space. But he does, Schnabel does this brilliant thing that I didn't even understand the first couple times he did it where he will, you know, have these characters recite this 
a bunch of dialogue in a scene, and then Van Gogh will replay it in his head. In his head, and and, it, and, and the dialogue will change. Right. Very slightly. Do you and notice that? Yes. Especially, it, it's, Especially it's really prominent in that scene. last scene with Teo and his wife. Uh, Joe, I believe was her name. Um, I, didn't, I didn't write it down. It, it, just, it just goes to show kind of, not necessarily the paranoia, but just, just the anxiety. Just the absolute anxiety and, and fear of rejection and, and loneliness that Van Gogh suffers. And, oh. I mean, it's 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 an it's an utterly fascinating movie. I mean, it was written it's such a fucking love letter to Van Gogh. Not in just the sense of this was a great artist, but in the sense of, you know, we talked about perspective in mm-hmm. the cinematography, and, and and you know Benoit Dahomey and, and obviously Schnebel uh, from just what we see in the Diamond Bell, the Butterfly. Every time you get his perspective, it one hundred um, Van Gogh's perspective. It, Dedicates itself to to his vision and retina problems from lead poisoning. Um, you, and you know, it deteriorates. The, the, I mean, as it, the movie it's, goes on, it deteriorates. It gets worse. I and know. Every time he looks at the sun, even though he sees the sun is beautiful, the sun's presented as like overwhelming thing because light created, you know, from his vision problems creates these halos, these really dis- disgusting kind well, of to look at on a big screen. The fact that half the screen is, you know, because it was like um, what's that called? Not dual sightedness, but the bifocal sightedness. Yeah. Basically, half the screen's blurred, but man, and it just makes cu- you... it's cut, and it's like you know half the screen. <clears> it gets over worse here. Yeah. and yeah, worse yeah. and worse, and it just makes you feel for this man who just all he wants, and you know Defoe, known for playing his 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 villains and and and, and craziness in the past in these last two years with Florida Project and now this, just presenting himself as like somebody you just want to kind of like hug. A lot. Mm. You just really want to hug the guy, like, constantly. Yeah, and, I mean, and, it's... And this is just every single piece of this film works. And Nothing you, doesn't work. And you, Nothing doesn't not work. I really want to get your opinion on this, and I wish we could have talked during the movie. Um, I liked it. <laughs> I probably loved it, actually. It was something I didn't notice until he had the scene with Mads Milkinson. Um, who's playing a priest who's running this asylum fucking, that he's been fucking placing. Mads Milkinson, man. Just, I mean, he's in the movie once. And he's, he's in the movie once. He was like, oh, Mads Milkinson. You see, have you seen The Hunt, by the way, with Mads Milkinson? No. Uh, you watch that sometime. Okay. We're fucking brilliant. I'll write it down. One, um, of, the, one of the best modern actors who's not like, oh, a yeah. star. He, um, one of the things I find really fascinating that this movie did was it, it leaves the dialogue to take place in these long chunks. So, you know... They're not. I mean, there are moments of like short dialogues, but there's also <laughs> these long scenes that kind of act like plays, like yeah. mini plays during the movie. But told in such like a Jonathan Demi style way to the head on, head on, looking, you know, looking at the camera. Jonathan Demi would use like a, a level angle. But you this know what is, I mean, but yeah. these are all they're they're different. You know what I mean? They're slightly askew. They're doing some kind of work. Um, it's always the other person who gets the head on thing. Van Gogh never gets. He does. When he's talking to the psychiatrist uh, after he cuts off. That's the true, and when he's talking to the woman, that's. But they're they're different because he's not just making eye contact; he's looking all around and he's kind of interacting with his own face. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's talking more about himself and not about the other person. I thought it was such a brilliant idea to kind of leave these moments of dialogue alone and then intersperse him with more of this heartbreaking but exultant music, and you know the cinematography. You know what I mean? Um, 
to let these things be separate. Let these moments when he's interacting with the world around him, it's obviously a different thing. And until it becomes not a different thing when he's in his, when he gets out of the asylum and he's in his brother's apartment, looking at all his paintings and wondering if he's actually a good painter. You know what I mean? And it gives when it overwhelms scene, him, and then that, and it overwhelms you, the viewer. Right. It's it. The sound uh, design is is so mixed so inconsistently the there's dual layering on the cinema on the uh, on the shots the editing is really frantic and doesn't make any really sense cohesively and so it just makes you so uncomfortable and you 100 percent feel how he feels um or you know you could suppose he would have felt and even that first when he gets to arles the first time when he sits down in, in that chair and he you know paints that picture of his boots um, I get really bad motion sickness in movies. It's one of the reasons I hate the Blair Witch Project because it made me so fucking sick to like sit through it. Um, and I was having some of those same feelings during that My scene. My number two most pivotal film. <laughs> I was having some of those same feelings during that scene. But one of the things that kind of got me through it was like intellectualizing it. It's like, what are we doing? Like, what are you doing here? And it's the idea that it's, it's again, with like you said, with perspective is that he's tr- he's trying to look at we are seeing, and it's something that Roma, that Cron didn't do in, in Roma at all, we are seeing his interpretation of the way that Van Gogh was attempting to look at the world and did look at the world. Um, to the point where like he's taking off his boots and for no reason the camera... You know, tilts, like, drops to the floor like it's a drunken, drops to the floor. like it's like a drunk man that's collapsed to the ground. His head fills up the entire screen at one point do you, horizontally. Do you love this one shot too? There is a shot where he's, he puts a painting. Um, I think he puts a painting of the. I can't remember if it's a painting of the boots or, or one of his old paintings. And it starts with a Dutch angle, and then he tilts his head, and the shot straightens out. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I noticed that. <laughs> and this is what you do. This is how you convey. I mean, and this is an extreme example. This rubbing, is an extreme, my fa- rubbing my face in sadness that we aren't going back to see this movie tonight. An extreme, extreme example of of you know shot composition and and sound design being you know you, your narrative in. Um, but you got to do something, you know. And like R- Roma absolutely fails to do. This movie does. Every single time, every single thing that you need to feel, every single emotion it's trying to drive home, this movie guides your hand. I mean, and I, what do we guide your hand like? Like in a, it's being obvious. No, but it's it's a piece of art that wants to convey something to you, and I think, and that's one of the reasons I hesitate to I hesitated to call this a, a Van Gogh biopic is because I think it just. You know, I don't think that Schnabel is is um, so limited in his creative thinking that he's thinking like, "Oh, my next project is going to be a biopic of Vincent Van Gogh." Because everyone's yeah, wait, made biopic. I waited of eleven Van years. I made that guy with locked in syndrome. I guess I'll do Van Gogh now. Yeah, um, I'm gonna really, come out of my long retirement for this. I really think it's a. I mean, I really this think was his first film. Right? I need to make sure that's I his think first so. film. No. He made my role in 2010, his first movie since then. The artist, what an artist has to give to, like the relationship of the artist to the, not the world that's dominated by people, but the kind of, the world we can't see. 
you know what I mean? What it gives to nature, what an artist gives to um, the idea of of civilization. And I think I know, and we're not, and we're, we're not even talking about this, like the screenwriting in this too. The screenwriting. Well, is, the, I mean, there's so many of those. The screenwriting. There, so, so I mean, Julian Schnabel wrote the screenplay with um, Louise Kugelberg, who I'm not sure what she did, but she also edited. She also edited and uh, Jean Claude Carré, who, who wrote with, with Louise Bunel. Yeah. Um, on some of his, on, on those classic '60s and '70s movies that he made, um, it's everything in this movie is deeper than what they're saying. So when when it sounds like <sighs> telegraphically prescient dialogue, when Van Gogh is saying to Mad Milkins' priest, like maybe I'm painting for, um, you know people that haven't been born yet um which is you know funny i guess because he got super he got super famous and influential when he died um but it also speaks to this idea he's not saying like the next generation of people he's saying it almost sounds like he's speaking to an alien future where he's maybe we don't even understand fully what he was going for. You know what I mean? That like no one can understand it yet that it's going to take eons for people to be able to process the vision that he was giving to everyone. I mean, when he was painting, um, that doctor, you know, um, Matteo Amalric, you know, who was in Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Um, and he's talking about this exact thing that, you know, he's not sure that people, you know, sometimes his paintings are failures and, He's not sure that it was the the right idea to kind of convey to people, to tell people what to see, and he's painting this picture of this uh, of this doctor, and you can just see, you know, the stereotypical now Van Gogh lines just like radiate like this kind of almost electricity radiating off of this this character that he's painting, um, and no one can see that. Like we can only see it in the paintings, but we can't see. With through Van Gogh's eyes, um, and I think, you know, not to be over overzealous in my praise of this movie, but I think that's one of the things that this movie tries to give us is seeing through his like see, being no. able to see that electricity. You know what I mean? No, no, not it's, seeing it's not the swirls, not seeing the waves, and but just like seeing how the world. How one is moved by the world and how that might happen. Like how someone might be able to perceive the world where they're so overwhelmed by it that it almost seems electric. It almost seems like it's fucking burning. Um, which is that, which is 100% that scene. I mean, not even talk about the, his world, his experience with nature, but experience with man is that scene where Gauguin saying he's going to leave. And that's the first instance you get of, you know, that emotional affect, you know. And and being outside of nature, he's like stuck inside, you know, built this old. Well, yeah, it's like a tomb. Yeah, and just you get that emotional affect of of everything being so overwhelming, and he and he has to escape outside in order for things to like in order for him to start replaying everything. Yeah, and it's not even that he has to escape outside. He needs to, when he's saying like I have to paint. If I don't paint, I'll die. He has to escape beyond outside. He has to escape beyond the world that he can see. Like, just 
that you and me can see. That if you and me went to this, you know, the south of France, we would all see. You know what I mean? He's escaping beyond that stuff. Um, and what is the cost of that to somebody? And what is the victory when you can put that down in paint? You know what I mean? Mm. For everyone, maybe not to see clearly, but to, to see a, a, a portion of, to see a moment of, to see a fraction of. Um, I don't know. It's uh, I can't wait for it to come on, you know, VOD somewhere so I can watch it again. The thing that's great about this movie, too, we're talking about the armory, you know. You lay every single shot of this movie out, half of them don't work. They just, like, well, this looks like a badly framed student film. Yeah. But put together as a composition, it oh is God. a fucking masterpiece. Just like Roma put together still by still as a masterpiece, put together as a composition, it doesn't work. And this is why film is that three-dimensional narrative. You know, it, it, it requires all the senses. And this movie, well, maybe not smell. Um, maybe <laughs> who knows um, you know this movie makes full use of that's why the medium exists yeah you know what I mean um, yeah okay At Eternity's Gate directed by Julian Schnabel find it somewhere and fucking see it it's yeah. unbelievable um, we will be right back with our number 79s All right, we're back. My number 79 is the Tom Hanks, written and directed, 1996 movie, That Thing You Do. It tells the story of The Wonders, fronted by drummer... Guy Patterson, played by Tom Everett Scott, who I don't know if you remember, Mario, but at the time... Was it the American Werewolf in Paris? After this. Oh, was it after that? Everyone oh. thought he was going to be the new Tom Hanks. Oh, he had that everyman quality about him. Oh, that, oh, about. Um, was it American Werewolf in Paris? Really? It was after, it was, I think it was the movie after this. You're right. He had to shed that Tom Hanks stereotype immediately. Immediately following doing this movie. You're right, 97. This is, <clears throat> I always think this is 98. Um, the movie tells the story of the Wonders' rise to fame, and then with their, with their one-hit wonder, that thing you do. Um, and then Dude. the moment where that all kind of falls apart, and they just fade away into oblivion like so many other one-hit wonders. Much like Ethan Embry's overall career. You have can't hardly wait on your on your list, right? Mm-hmm. It's number mm-hmm, it's sure. in the top ten. I uh, I love this movie. I love this movie with all my heart. I have loved this movie with all my heart ever since I saw it on video cassette, probably in 1997 when it was released on video cassette. Um, I am a drummer by trade. Some of my earliest drumming memories um, are of putting in my earplugs and putting in my dad's huge old 1970s, 1980s headphones with the one quarter inch jack into a stereo and listening to a tape of the soundtrack for that thing you do and playing along uh, to the songs. Uh, I learned to play drums, what I'm saying, from playing that thing you do. Um, I once, in my jazz band in high school, 
did a way too long drum solo during a funk number that was just the I Am Spartacus song that guy plays for Del Paxton. Um, that just got faster and faster and faster until I just had to stop. And everyone gave me dirty looks and said, like, that was really bad. But it was the only move I had back then, Mario, because of that thing you do. I, as soon as my dad got a CD, an external CD burner, um, this was pre-iTunes or pre-me being super smart. I just took my cassette of that thing you do soundtrack, which had been worn to nothing, and then burned the tracks, even though I could have just gone to my local FYE and bought the thing on CD so I could listen to it in my, <laughs> in my car. Um, it is a... It is almost like the definition of a pivotal pivotal film for me. You know what I mean? It just like hangs there in my life. I still drive around at least once a week blasting those songs as loud as I can and singing along to them and imagining that I have figured out how to do have how to have this exact career. Not a longer career. This this one. I want this. Also in the nineteen sixties or Sure. Whenever. You know, but it's not even that. It's not even the career. And because the more no, it's like an extended edition career or theatrical release career. Theatrical release career. Okay. What I want is the moment, the the second time we hear that thing you do, not the slow garage one, but when they are at the 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 Mercyhurst talent competition, and Charlie's Theron is there, you know, looking at nothing, looking at herself in the mirror, um, and Liv Tyler's running around and. And Giovanni Ribisi's walking in with his broken arm and, you know, he's moaning that they're playing the song too fast. That moment when they start playing that song fast and Steve Zahn and Jonathan Sheck are just looking around like, what the fuck are we doing? What are we supposed to do? And everybody just kind of starts dancing. Um, I, I think I play music in an attempt to... To have that moment for myself, Mario, is what I think. Um, it's why I gave... I mean, we shit on A Star is Born, rightfully so, because it's a shitty movie. Um, but I was willing to give a shitty movie a chance because... Right as, sh- as, as Shallow starts to kick up, I was like, okay, yeah, this is all that thing you do coming back to me. You know what I mean? That moment of musical revelation caught on film that you can feel um, is a really profound and addictive and glorious experience and feeling. Um, And I get it. I get fucking chills, man, every time that song comes on. And it is just... It's just the fucking best. Um, I think the thing that is weird about this movie is that it is... I mean, Tom Hanks did everything in his power to create, a, to take a good, a really good movie and turn it into a, a 90s romantic comedy Which is exactly what I see right. this as. Um, it's not to shit on it in any way, it's just, it's no, fun. No, no. It's I, fun to me. Uh, and it, and it, kind of, it kind of steers its way into that, you know what I mean? Like at the end of the movie, like they get to Hollywood and all of a sudden Guy is really interested in Faye, you know, played by Liv Tyler. Um and there's even the wise sage black man in in the valet Lamar, who 
you know, it was all, you know, all of a sudden they're doling out romantic advice and, and cold medicine remedies and where to get really good jazz music from. Um, it's just, it kind of, it ends, it ends as a stereotype and, it, you know, even to the point where Lamar, the movie ends with Lamar, like looking directly at the camera after Faye and um, Guy have kind of, you know, gone back into the hotel, I guess, to do it because they've realized that they should have been together since Pittsburgh. Um, you know what I mean? It's just kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of a bummer as, as, which I guess maybe, I mean, I could, you could make a case, um, which I don't think is true, but you can make the case that it's designed to do that. You know what I mean? It all is downhill from here, but obviously that's not really what's happening because they get married and they start this conservatory and blah, 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 blah. Um, but it doesn't change, it doesn't change that opening scene. It doesn't change the, how good the songs are. You know what I mean? Um, which are written by um, Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne wrote, you know, that thing you really? do. Um, I did not know that. A couple of the other songs were written by the Gigolo Aunts, who were a New York band, power pop band. Um, you know, they got this band, the Candy Butchers, you know, is represented with some vocal performances and stuff. It is, uh, the songs are so good. I mean, I think, you know, the Ringer, which is, you know, that media whatever website that i reference frequently they, they've done like best movie songs and best musical lists recently and that thing you do was like number five on the best musical list or number four on the best musical list and that thing you do this song was like number four on the best musical songs that's number one i don't know something shitty <laughs> a star wars one was way too high um the Christopherson one or the current one? The current one. Ugh. But if you're going to make one of these movies, the song has to be good, right? I the mean, that's great. the key. That's the key to the whole yeah. thing is, you know. Um, the song's still song. semi-famous. It should be. Like, I mean, it's a great still, fucking song. You could go, do, and people will jump into it. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry I'm not saying a lot during this. It's just this movie... I, I, I'm trying to think of of a, a similar film of mine that you've seen. Maybe it's the next movie we'll talk about that just did not hit me in any way. Besides, like um, that was that was everything. Me, Patriot Patriot Games was kind of similar. Yeah, yeah. Like I took some from Patriot Games, but this one is just. What's um, I mean? I'm not looking for like validation. No, no, I know. It's just I'm I'm just apologizing to the audience for being so <laughs> quiet. Um, it's fine. It's fun. It's, yeah, it's, it's really well done. Um, I mean, you get that great breakthrough Steve Zahn performance. I mean, this is where Steve Zahn became like a person, and then like perfect, you know, perfect getaway made him a star. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought you were gonna say Sahara made him a star, but you ever see Perfect Getaway? It's actually really good. No. Who? Wait. Maybe it did. Who's in it? Uh, Timothy Oliphant, um, Mila Jovovich. Oh, no, it's I didn't a really see it. very typical mid. Like early 2010 thriller. It has two of my least favorite actors in it, in Timothy Oliphant. Oh, and I always Jovovich, forget you so. hate Timothy Oliphant. I guess we'll not be talking about the Deadwood movie. When and it comes Josh out. Duhamel. Well, I think Deadwood's a stupid show too, but that's just. <sighs> I don't like HBO TV. I just I don't, don't like it. Either. I'm sorry. I like Carnival, Wire, and Deadwood. And that's about I it. I liked Oz briefly. I didn't like Oz. I liked The Max. Can we talk about The Max? Which one is that? It was an animated show based on the cartoon. I what mean, cartoon? based on the comic book. Oh, oh, I don't remember that one. Okay. Is that 90s? Uh, yeah, I guess. It was... Uh, was it an image comic? Was it an image comic? Maybe it wasn't an image comic. I don't even remember oh, yeah. it. 
But remember he was purple and he had claw hands and he talked to bunnies? Remember? Remember this, Mario? The Max? You should, you should add blinking sounds right and now. And there was like a cave woman? Nope, I really? do not remember yeah, okay. this. Um, um, but no, it's, it's, it's entertaining. It's really entertaining. Really competently directed. Bring that gem back. Um, but it's what makes this list interesting is the fact that a movie I find so Saturday afternoon on TBS. Oh, yeah. It's and so Saturday afternoon on TBS. And, and, and I forget about it. You know, makes makes such an impact on you, right? Well, that's. I mean, uh, we don't really mean to go back into like the purpose of 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 the lists again and again. But I think that's kind of one of the great things about movies is that everything's going to hit you. Things are going to hit you at a different time in a different way in in a different station of your life. If I had just seen this movie for the first time now, it probably, I would be like, that's a good song. I'm going to go download that song and then just move on with my life. You know what I mean? But because of when I saw it, it is, you know, uh, it's monumental. It's importance is just, it's importance to me as a film and as a series of songs cannot be, cannot be understated or overstated. Excuse me. It's importance to me as a movie in a, in a series of songs, um, Cannot be overstated at all. It's just it's it's like it's like everything. It's my music. I mean, I'm going to say this a lot during the next like forty or no the next thirty. This is we're, we're in the heart right now. We're in the heart, and I'm going to say this a lot. Like this this is the dream. The the dream is for the dream is to hear your song on the radio and to run down the street screaming until you get to your friend's appliance store where you will turn on the radio station that's playing your song on every radio um, and dance around in a circle with your bandmates holding a cardboard placard of a woman trying to sell you some kind of weird electronic thing. You know what I mean? That's the fucking dream. Um, It's to the point where, like, even in my own life, when they played my band's song on Radio 104's local music show, um, I sat there, you know... Just with my like chin propped up in my fists, just amazed that I was hearing, you know, my tune coming out of like a radio for real with an intro and with another song coming after it. Um, they once played my student film on public access TV, and, didn't, and I was you were pretty psyched about it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's and I think that's. I don't think I think good rules gone bad. I think one of the things about this movie is that there's no real there's no real commentary here, right? No, it's, it's just it's a, fun. It's just a fun movie, and it, think, it succeeds very right. well in that. If I think it's saying anything, it's that it's how easily like creativity can kind of blossom and then fade away, but like also how you just you know I don't know how. These things are just important, and how, and what, uh, I don't know, like how we said that Roma's like not really, it wants to be a slice of life, but it's not a slice of life. I think this is one of those things, and you know, um, Tom Hanks's character, uh, Mr. White, says at one point that like, oh, it's you know, a lot of bands have been down this road before. He essentially says, you know, there's been a lot of one-hit wonders, and there have been a lot of one-hit wonders, but it doesn't change the fact that like for that brief moment, 
Like, those guys felt like they owned the fucking universe. And my, you know, that's the dream, is for a moment to feel like you own the fucking world. You know what I mean? And if it's just because you're, you had a one-hit song and you got it printed on a bunch of labels and you played a couple of shows and they played it on the radio, um, you know, then you had a, you did it, you did it right. For a moment, you did, you did it exactly right. Um, you did that thing you do. You did that thing you do. All right, we will be right back with Mario 79. Welcome back. Uh, as Tom has said before, he has five, two thousand four, two thousand seventeen films on his list. Conversely, I also have one year, uh, a plethora of films um, from this particular year on my list, and this is the first one, and that is the year two thousand six. Uh, initially released at the two thousand five Sundance, where it won the Grand Jury Award. This is the neo-noir satire, I'd argue. Oh, okay. All right. Satire Continue. in the... Continue. <laughs> brick. Brendan? Emily? I really screwed up. Screwed up how? The brick. What? I, I didn't know it was bad, but the pin's on it now. You gotta help me. Slow down now. This isn't good? No. Emily said words I didn't know. Tell me if they catch. Brick? No. Tug? Tug might be a drink, like milk and vodka. Pin? You know the kingpin. Dope runner, right? Big time. What are you gonna do? She asked for my help. I just wanna know she's okay. So what's first? I'm gonna start shaking things up. Written and directed by Ryan Johnson. Not necessarily in the sense of a humorous satire, but in the sense of it's a send-up. A satire in the, the most general of terms. Oh, I'm turning on your mic. Between my nacho chewing, I'm listening intently to hear how the send-up works in this. It's a... It, it, it. Continue. Continue. Okay. It uh, tells the tale of... I like how we always start these things by saying it tells the tale. There tells the tale. Um, this stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Brendan Fry. It's a Fry. dark and stormy night. Yeah, too, exactly. Right? Uh, as he... Um, finds his ex-lover, Emily, played by Emile de Riven, who somehow disappeared in the, to the 2010s. She just <laughs> faded away. Like, she got eaten by a Langolier. Um, <laughs> that, that, joke, that joke landed way more than I thought it was going to. Was um, he tries to find out how she was killed. Um, from there, he, through the means of high school cliques and old 26-year-old drug dealers, he sets a course of the old hard-boiled detective story, and, uh, that's Brick, basically. Now, I call this a satire in the sense of it is... In every single moment, aware of what it's doing, it is in no way trying to reinvent the wheel. It hits every single cliche. It is 
every single notch, every single moment, every single thing you've ever seen in these types of films, and it does it again in an entirely new setting. But it does it for a new age and a new world. It's not trying to reintroduce anything. It is just merely doing it again and doing it in kind of like a fun sort of way. Tom has his hand up. But I would argue, and I know we just—that's not, not a question. I know you just, <laughs> and then we just started this. Um, this is gonna be divisive. This is one of my favorite movies. I think it's, I think because the first section. I don't know how. To, I don't know how to divide this movie because not the There's first no half. Axe. That's There's like not the even first axe, yeah. third, maybe. Seems is really clever in the fact that it seems to be using the environment of a high school it seems to be na- Brendan seems to be navigating the the hard-boiled detective you know themes through this really Byzantine world of, of, of high school politics you know what I mean and it's very and it seems very strict about that um, it doesn't really go outside of the the specifics of the high school of the institution until it does go outside the institution and then like I don't know the wheels come off of it and it kind of turns and then someone gets shot in the head. Um, so I, my, my argument was it would be just like you're doing so you are doing something really interesting in 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 using these this high school setting as a kind of stand in for like you know, like the political world or for, you know, uh, how cities operate, you know, the things that like these hard-boiled detective novels generally traffic in or like the mafia. Um, but it's using, you know, a fairly good simile in high school, in high school to, to do that same thing. But then it just, but then it doesn't do that anymore. See, that's why I look at it as a satire. I look at it in the sense of it is not trying to do those moments. It is not trying to be clever. It's not trying to do that in those Deschel Hammett things or, or anything you see in the hardball detective worlds of something like Chinatown. It is merely taking a very common trope known through the ages and at this time was kind of gaining a resurgence. Um, yeah, because of you know, some like of the stuff that LA Confidential yeah. had also you know come out eight nine years earlier. Inherent Vice had come had been written and come out um, a couple years before this, I think. Inherent Vice was written by Pynchon. Mm. Um, you know, Big Lebowski does a lot of the similar things. It, it just it just tells it in a new fun way. But that's not necessarily why this movie is yeah, on yeah, my yeah. list. The major reason this film is on my list it is one of the best examples of introducing character tropes in establishing shots every single character in this film their establishing shot defines the nature of that character not that you're not going to give me an example but I would like an example or several examples I'll give you. I'll give you many. Give me all of the um, examples. Let's go with the simplest one: the brain. Yeah, just doing the Rubik's cube, sitting there, solving the Rubik's cube. That's pretty. That's pretty simple. Got he's, glasses. He's, he's got the glasses. He's got the thick rim glasses. He's kind of sitting there. He's, he's got a briefcase. He's, he's got a briefcase, but he's he's an observer. He's he's outside the world. He's he's not a part of it. He's doing his own thing, but he's got his ear. To, you know, he's got his 
back to the wall what people watching you know mm. the, the wallflower has always been the people watcher that's the brain um you got laura laura you know in, in her first shot she's flirting with um with brad you know mm. she's 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 positioned her body in such a way against the against the uh the car that she's like playing the the coy kind of and look on her face and look on her face yeah. is kind of playing that coy sort of i don't know what i'm doing i'm the pretty girl but her body nature sort of moves brad in a certain way she blocks she blocks brad into mm. moving in the way she's she's playing that puppet master emily the first shot you see of her is dead just in the water so you know she's dead <laughs> yeah but no, you see, you see her dead, but it focuses on just the fingers and the hair right, right, and the yeah. purity of the being. The first, and, and the, you know, we see Tug. The first thing, you see, first real true shot after those, those first couple punches of Brendan is when he's walking up slowly yep. to Brendan when he has his hand, uh, has the, uh, the concrete block, yep. and he's, he's squeezing his hands together, yep. you know. And he's moving slowly, then he's moving a little faster. And the entire narrative of Tug is how much he cannot control his emotions. And then Brendan, you know, one of my favorite opening 40 seconds of modern film. Hot take. Just looking at... Do we have a hot take? No, no, I I am... Yeah, that's that's fine. But just, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who I think is... I don't... I don't. He's not an underrated actor. He's a really good actor who just doesn't do a lot of stuff ever. Well, I think he's I, by choice. I think. I think, he, but I also think he's one of those actors who's waiting to get to hit an age, yeah, where he can do. Because I think we saw a little bit of this with Maggie Gyllenhaal, in the kindergarten teacher, and she's not that old, but now she's old enough that she can have like high school age kids. So she can kind of start that next layer. The problem of her is Joseph Gordon Levitt is not like facially aging. No, no, but if he's, I was watching a Magic the Gathering video with him, and but, he's like looks like but Jake almost Jill- exactly. The, actually, a better example of this this is Jake Gyllenhaal in, in Wildlife, where Jake Gyllenhaal isn't any older than Joseph Gordon Levitt, but now Jake Gyllenhaal has kind of hit a place where we will accept that Jake Gyllenhaal has a fourteen year old son. And we won't with Joseph Gordon Levitt right now. Well so. I think I think yeah, he, he's he's waiting to get out of this place where he can only play side men to Leonardo DiCaprio and he can start playing or you know no. or or twenty something characters and he can play like leading men in, in in dramas that are about more than twenty something politics or like thirty something, you know, life happenings or, you know, whatever. And and just just this opening shot where you know he's standing in front of the um, the A the the tunnel, and he's looking at Emily's body, you know that 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 oh that score I love, uh, not really a score just that that hanging theme that plays in various tones mm-hmm. and intonations throughout the film, and and you just get this focus on his face. Ryan Johnson is smart enough to frame it in such a way that he's focused. He's leaving it purely up to Levitt to kind of like carry this contemplation, planning, plotting, but also just this intense frustration and anger mm-hmm. which is then presented throughout the entire film by brendan just getting the shit kicked out of him as though he's paying penance you know he is dying basically near the end of this movie mm-hmm. you know he's almost coughing up blood he's you know but but he's he's he feels like he's almost put you know the the narrative plays itself in such a way that he's put himself in this position and and this is his way of of needing to get something done to to save emily um not save emily necessarily but to 
avenge Emily and her death or, or to find justice for her, but also that he, through his immaturity, let's say, for example, we, you know, discussing with the vice principal, um, led down the path that ended up with her death. So, like, every single shot he takes, every single near hit from a car he takes is just him, you know, slapping the whip against his own back. Huh, that's interesting. Um, and it's told so much in those 40 seconds. And this is one, this is a movie where I was reaching my awakening, I guess, with film. Um, not awakening a film, but where I started concentrating really heavily on what a film was doing in all of its component parts. Um, and this has been the, the, the framing device of today's episode. I think this episode will probably be called Component Parts. Huh? <laughs> He's writing it down. Um, where, this pen doesn't work, Mario. Throwing you this pen. Uh, does that one work? It does work. Writing in, writing in red ink, that's how you know it's true. Um, you, you know, these, these establishing shots and just, just the, the blocking of the characters does so much work into guiding the audience into how you, how you feel and how these characters are going to play. Yeah. Um, you know the dialogue is is fairly on the nose and unnatural, it, unnatural. Um, but it's supposed to be. I it's mean, supposed to be. It's stilted. It's yeah. very stilted, but in, in purpose. And but it wouldn't really give you an affect for how these character how these characters will play out necessarily. Besides how the dialogue leads it, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't feel real if not for establishing from the get go what each character's archetype is going to be. And mm-hmm. this is a movie that f- so fully engenders itself with archetypes. Yeah. I agree with you. Oh, no, that's a yeah, like I'm going to say something against this. Well, I think I'm going to, I'm going to push back on the satire then because doesn't satire in, in imply a level of... I don't, it's obviously not comedy, but like a humor... Like, is there a humor to Dode getting shot in the head? Like, what are we satire? What are we satirizing here? With like everyone at the end of the movie getting killed. I am using the term satire in the sense of exaggeration. Um, you know, you know, not necessarily irony or whatnot or the humor, but. A lot of times, satire is, is, is the, the term, at least now, is in satire is used to say an exaggeration of a, a trope. Yeah. Um, not a comedic, not a humorous, not an absurd, no, it. but it's an exa- it is 100% leaning in on the worlds that have been created by the hard-boiled genre. It's such an extreme and dialing everything up to 11 but I, so the, my argument, I think, is that it does that for a while, and then um, the pin shoots, and then Tug shoots Dode in the head, uh, and then the it first, goes beyond. I mean, the first two. That's that's you're you're done with. Mm. And then it goes beyond. Then it goes beyond the satire and becomes just the thing that it was. But does it? Because after, even after Dode gets shot in the head, they do a callback to the trunk opening up. Yeah. You know, like there's a lot of these callbacks to moments that are just kind of silly. Um, not necessarily silly, but exaggerated. You yeah. um, know, even past that point. And yeah, I would say that Johnson 
pin focuses his plot after Dode. You know, there's a lot to be done in the well, 25 to 30 minutes that follows. But I would argue, like, so, you know, I think the one moment where, like, your satire thing is really makes a lot of sense to me is, you know, when they're in the pin's house. And the mom, well, even mom even is, the mom, and later on, right. exactly in the last shot where you when have these just, two different gangs together, and the mom is just walking around with her, her chicken, uh, cafe, craft, uh, right? And I pouring and that's, apples. And juice. it's one of the, and I think that's one of the. There is a there is a um, unfulfilled dichotomy for me between the fa- like what the film is showing and what the film wants you to think that it's showing because I don't think you can have the amount of actual death that you have in this movie and still say like it's just send up like just sending some stuff up because you don't have to kill anybody for that stuff you know what I mean like one dead person's fine like massive massive drug deals and like all this there's only eight dead people in this movie well, I guess. Who knows? <laughs> no, there's only... Brendan runs away before we find out how many actual dead people are left in that house. No, they say six. Oh, six. Okay, fine. There's eight dead but, people. like, so there's, you know, even six dead people. One dead person I'm okay with. Dead Emily. I'm, I'm, I'm on board with dead Emily because one t- teenager dies all the time. You know what I mean? That's a good basis for a movie. Um, <laughs> one teenager dies all the time is a good basis for a movie? Component parts... Parentheses, one teenager dies all the time. Parentheses. Um, but then as soon as like the body count rises, I'm just like, well, I can't even... I don't. Uh, for me, I couldn't take the, the metaphor or the satire seriously anymore. Well, no, I would agree. So, so Dode's death for as good, like as neat of a shot as it is. Sure. It's a really neat shot. Not so much like the blood spatter, but like this smoke that kind of... Which is, I mean, the head. fact that this movie um, was made for five hundred thousand dollars is fascinating. Yeah, it does not at all look like it's five hundred. Like I thought that was Richard Roundtree's salary. Yeah. <laughs> it, it might have been. It might have been. Yeah, yeah. Um, Four hundred and fifty thousand. That was Richard Roundtree's salary. Well, that's how much the movie was made for. <laughs> it was four hundred fifty. Um, but yeah, I would, I would just say, you know, hard-boiled detective film, uh, any sort of noir film, has to get. A lot of places very quickly. And this has to get some those places in 100 minutes. And it spends the first 20 minutes even getting back to the point, the catalyst of all the action, where, where you know Emily dies. So you have 20 minutes of build-up to what is usually going to be your opening shot you know, in, in these sort of films. Um, you know, she is both the damsel in distress and, and the victim. Uh and so I would agree that, you know, maybe it, it's, it's, a, it's an overall narrative failing um, in that last act. But, man, it's still so, so solid, even with that failing. Like, the dialogue is still really sharp. Um, mm. Like, it's, there, there's so many good lines in this movie that, that like, are, are so great for a, a hard-boiled detective Mm-hmm. sort of film um the entire time where it says like you know a number of people have seen the pin would raise their hand you have a room full of you know stuff pockets or you know what kara says if you're ever looking to get back into things i could use you mm-hmm. and just megan good somehow he found the perf- you know ryan johnson for as much shit as he gets now for making a 
a Star Wars movie. Making a perfectly serviceable. Making probably the best film Star Wars movie. Take that, people. Well, it had the best like, moments in it, but we're you what? Know, it had the it certainly had the best moments in it of like the last five Star Wars movies. Well, yeah, it's it's the best. It's the most film mm-hmm. of the Star Wars movies. Maybe maybe Rogue One. Who fucking cares? It's Star okay. Wars. Nobody, yeah, nobody yeah. gives a shit. But you know, getting an actual performance out of her and actually getting her to say like those lines, like with that gravity, with with that double entendre, right? Um, that entire like motherfucker line in the end like the <laughs> nice little double play of like you're the dad motherfucker yeah like, like those things are it's just it's it's clever it's it's it, and for somebody who was 21 at the time yeah yeah tell me about like when do you see it in 20 theaters? i was 20 i saw it in theaters i saw it i you know like like the i was this is when i was getting in the movies yeah um 2004 was my start you know so the movies are gonna pop up my lists We'll talk about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2005, a movie that's going to pop up on my list later that, rolled, that was already on the list, History of Violence, was the first movie I looked at and was like, oh, I can break this movie apart, History of Violence. Mm-hmm. You know? And so like after that movie, I started looking at movies as components. Yeah. And this one just works in so many ways where you know, the screenwriting has on the nose as it is as clever the the cinematography works in so many ways. Even that's even a lot of stuff in this is on the nose. Um, that shot where he's looking at the A frame picture, like the yeah, where yeah. the brain says everything is, you know, maybe a symbol of of a place where drug deals or meetings are going down. He's looking at this A picture. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes like it's like a thirty second shot. It keeps coming back and forth, and eventually the camera kind of does a slow pan down to mirror the fact that it's the tunnel. Mm-hmm. You know? And he colors it in. Yeah, exactly. But even before he colors it in, like, when it pans down, you're like, that's the tunnel from the beginning. Mm. You know, it gives, like, the, the viewer a little, like, hey, yeah. you know what this is, finally. Um, you know, things like that. Things like uh, even the direction of, of like the fight scene between him and um him and brad mm-hmm. uh y- you know just just the way a lot of it's off camera mm. and you just get like the nice kind of sound editing a lot, a lot of it just works as component parts yeah. it's a good it's a good introduction for a, a sophomore in college who hasn't really mm. sat down to film um but yeah. even now you know the, the thousands of movies I've seen before then, I'm, I go back to this and, and try to take off the glasses of nostalgia. And right. I still fucking love it. I still... Like, I, I found myself... I hadn't seen this movie in six years. And I was directly quoting it. I was... It made that much of an impression on me that I could... Sure. Jump into a random scene that didn't even make an impression on me and quoted line for line i mean i do the same thing with that thing you do you know what i mean it's like it's i think they're they're similar movies for us in the sense that for whatever flaws they may or like the years have kind of shown that they may have you're just like i don't care about that i don't care no it's a very mid-2000s movie right like watching it i actually watched today watching today there's so many parts a lot of fade in and fade outs like are so dated now um they were so popular in movies in the mid two thousands. And some of those like jump cuts 
Where, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the really effective ones was when he sees Emily finally. Like, have he's been chasing Emily down for, like, so, like, the beginning part of the movie, trying to figure out where she is, blah, blah, blah. And, and he, he drops like, down and her, runs her. And he's just like, and, anno- really- and another really good one is um, when he sees what he assumed to be Tug, but ends up being Laura in the end. That shot where it's just over his shoulder, and, like, you see, like, nothing's happening for a while, and then you see the car mm-hmm. in a distance. And her, you know, the dialogue is, is built in such a way that. She would naturally be getting more frantic, but it's not, you know, mm-hmm. and that pairing, that tone out, that, that rhythm between when the car comes into her vision and the dialogue between them works so well in making it so she would freak out at that exact moment. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's things like there is those moments of brilliance that would be hallmarks of a good director. And Ryan Johnson's, I He's think, a, a really good yeah, director. Yeah. What are they, like, like, look at the Praetorian fight in, like, I, I, like when I was watching the fight scene between Brendan and, and Brad, you know, like, look at that, that fight scene, look at the Praetorian, like, guard fight scene in Last, you watched Last Jedi, right? Yeah. The Praetorian fight scene in Last Jedi is the best fight scene in the entire fucking series. That's when Kylo Ren and Rey fight the, 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 the Praetorian guards. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, but that entire fight, like the Red Room samurai oh, fight scene, is fantastic. Yeah. And it's yeah, because yeah. this fucking guy knows how to direct. You know, and you see those moments of ingenuity. I want to say brilliance yet. Ingenuity. In, ingenuity. Is a really good word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in this film. And this is just such a clever debut. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. And it's. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just not my movie. That's why it's your fucking movie. Yeah, like that thing you do is not my movie. And we could almost call this episode no. Not Our Movies. Also um, at Eternity's Gate, which is which is 100% our movies. Um, all right. We did the thing that I said I didn't want to ever do. We just talked about new movies longer than we talked about our, our list movies. That's well, like, it was going to happen. That's okay. Because this is a time of year where it's going to happen. Yeah. Like like next year when we get to this. In, in, in like a, we're in the seven. We're in the high seventies. In still. like a month after we get after we list yeah. our best ofs of the year and stuff, we're going to really focus heavily on our lists. I'm sorry, but in April we have Hellboy coming out, and you know me and David Harbor are tight like bros. So we're gonna, are we're talking tight about like bros? Yeah, no, we're going to get him. Oh, we're going to get David Harbor on the pod. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, that's you can look. Have you, have you been looking at some of the movies coming out next year? No. Some, of the, some of the trailers have not been good. I have not. There's Hellboy. There's there's Men in Black International. I'm gonna be honest with you. After the Oscars, I'm taking time off from new movies. So am I gonna be the one that doing the new movie talk? Yes. I was like blah blah blah. We got we got to go back to the special <laughs> topics again. Special topics. Luckily, yeah, yeah. we have a couple things in our back pocket to bring up that we can turn into a blocks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. But if you want to talk about how good the 2019 first quarter is, because you're going to be wrong, they will tell you you're wrong. We don't care. You can tell us that on twitter.com slash film pivotal. Or look at a sad ghost town that is our Instagram at instagram.com slash instagram.com. Instagram.com slash sadness. Yeah. And in the new year, you know, my, my New Year's resolution for this year will be to be social media savvy. So, in the new year, Instagram... Is that actually your resolution? I don't do fucking New Year's resolutions, so sure. My New Year's <laughs> okay. resolution is to be social media savvy, because 
you know, if you're going to have a New Year's resolution, fucking do it before New Year's, dicks. That's a terrible resolution. You should be ashamed of yourself. You're the only... You know what's funny is that if that was true, you'd be the only person that says, I want to spend more time on social media for the New Year's resolution. Everyone else in the world is like, you know what, I think I should spend less time on social media. But you're you just like, I'm going to do more. I got to get, get more in there. I'm going to tell you this. Every time I'm on my... Every time I'm on my phone at work, which is mostly when I'm on my phone, well, I'm not at work. I'm not on my phone because my work does involves little actual work. <laughs> I'm so glad nobody from my work listens to this podcast. I'm either on like the movie Reddit mm-hmm. or on Bothajoo.com playing a board game. There you go. So, you know, actually being on social media might be proactive for me. There you me. go. Yeah, you might actually go. involve something that involves some work. This yep. podcast might actually be more work than my actual job. <laughs> it is. There you go. That's awesome. Um, if you want to tell us how awesome your job is or want to don't do that email email Mario and tell him um, to do a better job at his job you can uh, I don't work for the state don't worry (laughs) guys you can send us a message at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and you can see links to all of our episodes and to how to subscribe to us and to list of the beers that we drank Uh, we might actually put a full list of the we might actually list the spices in Bitches Brew. We will. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely do that. Um, There's a lot of them. And if you want to rate us whatever you want to rate us and give us a comment on iTunes or whatever people say, you could do that too if you want, whatever. Um, Pop up with your Zune. <laughs> do people still have Zunes? Rate us on Microsoft Store. Um you know, until then, uh, do what we're going to do, which is go see a movie, drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. <laughs>